This is Horum with Horum's Quorum. My guest today is Avanish Marwaha, who is the CEO of Latera, a legal tech company with some pretty big ambitions. And I've actually used Latera. I found it really useful. So I was looking forward to this conversation. Uh, it was fascinating. I think the thing about Avanish is he's had some very big picture thinking, some very strategic visions for himself uh, that we discussed early on. We talked about some of the goals he set for himself in his mid-20s that he's still living out today. Uh, so I think that forward thinking is really impressive. But what's also impressive is how down to earth he is and flexible he is. And I think we discussed uh, some of the things he's learned along the way. And, and uh, you'll definitely get a sense of humility and a lack of ego, which is uh, really impressive. So I think there's a ton of great insights in there for lawyers or for uh, anyone who's looking to learn more about where the legal landscape is heading. And anyone who wants to think about how do you think about from first principles, how to enter in some new domain and think about uh, growing something uh, you know, or entering into a, a new frontier of some kind. So I think there's lots of insights for lots of people here. Uh, so I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Avanish, great to catch up again. Yeah, same here. Good to talk to you again. Uh, well, you know, we were just talking about, I think, a really interesting concept. Um, and you were talking about um, the relationships you focused on um, as you've advanced yourself professionally. And you, were, you talked about the role that focus has had in, um, in how you select relationships and cultivate relationships to focus on as you advance yourself. And I think it's a really interesting concept. And, uh, and I think it applies to me as you know, I enter a new phase of entrepreneurship for myself in learning, you know, who I need to rely on and, and whose ideas just aren't as useful. Um, and I'm sure other people are in, in, in similar reflection points for themselves. And so I think it's a really interesting concept. I want to hear you talk a little more about, about you know, how that philosophy has informed your life. And then also I think probably an interesting jumping point is when you made that realization and what was it that, what were the circumstances that led you to make that switch and what that felt like to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to focus in certain relationships. Um, so can you tell me about that? Um. Yeah, great. That's that's interesting topics. We, as we've grown and the careers have evolved for my wife and I, we have not necessarily purposefully, but there's been some intent around who we naturally gravitate our time with. And when I sat back in my late 20s and wrote out the goals I had personally that I wanted to achieve in the next 15 years, so by the time I'm 45, and the journey I want to go on personally and professionally in that way. Uh, and if you were to achieve those things, you had to change things about your life along the way. Um, and you think about phases of adulthood, you know, when you're in college and right out of college, it's a fun time. You're learning how to be social. You're learning how to navigate different relationships. Uh, as you move into your late twenties, you're probably starting to look at some mentorships of people that you want to follow. You're starting to kind of stop the socialization as much. You're, you're getting more interested in culture and travel. You might find folks that are in the same interest as you are. And then at some point, I think for many of us, we really want to achieve professional greatness or monetary greatness. And to do so, I, and I could be wrong. I think there, there you need to surround yourself with people that are like-minded during that phase of your life. And sometimes the folks that you hung out with um, that fed and kept your soul full in your late 20s, early 20s, 
late teens, they just can't have the same uh, time in your life. And it's not meant that they can't be your friends. You just, it's difficult to find the opportunities to be together because you have to find, you have to, I think you have to surround yourself with folks who are like-minded in the phase of life you're in. So a lot of our friends uh, and relationships that we have now, we tend to find ourselves with folks that are on a similar journey, whether it's they're a physician and they want to become top of their uh, their profession and be the top physician in the region or for the craft, whether they're in banking and finance and they want to hit really great returns for shareholders. They're all motivated by a professional achievement. And they're also ironically want to have the same thing for their families. They want to just strive to be good people. And we can just share a lot with each other, right? We, we have, when I have an issue at work or someone else does, even if our, if our industries and professions are different, there's a lot of um, commonality in what we, what we deal with. So it just helps us, I think, find solace with folks who are going through the same things. Now, we do have friends that we've been friends with since college, and those relationships are different, right? We'll get together, and they're meant to relive the past a bit, uh, reminisce and share memories of what you all achieved at that given period of time. But you're probably no longer driving each other to do something great because you're at different stages of your lives and you're all chasing different dreams. So we just find ourselves now more and more spending time with folks that are uh, driven for that same purpose. And we've kind of, I don't want to use the word shed because we haven't really shed. We just, we just naturally don't find the opportunity to spend together with folks that we did in the past. And that's the thing that's helped us because now we're surrounded by folks that are equally driven. They're not, uh, you know, they're not giving us advice and counsel against doing something because they wouldn't do it. They're giving us advice and counsel on how to do it better. And those are great friends to have, I think. So it sounds like a variety of people. And how are you, so like, I guess in the past several years, where have you met this variety of people that you've met, like these physicians and these people are you know, finding it's just very different walks of life? It's definitely harder the older you get. Like that's, that's just the nature of being humans. I think the older you get, it's harder to get out of your comfort zone to meet people. So, you know, typically it comes from uh, you know, one person you might know and they know someone else and you slowly... Um, found your way into new relationships uh, over time. But because it's so difficult to do so, I think the number of people you have in your circle just gets smaller just because it's harder to find 10, 15 people to hang out with. You may just have three or four. And, uh, you know, for me personally, that's okay. I think for some people, they need that large group around them for different purposes. I just want the time or the brain space to, to manage that. So I've, you know, we've been fortunate enough to find the three or four people that we'd like to hang out with. And uh, I don't know if it's being lazy or not, but that's been okay. And that's, that's looking back in the last five years, most of the success we've had as a family has come from this tight circle that we've had around us. Um, and so we can't, you know, for, for us, it's worked out well. So what's some insights? I mean, so you are the CEO of a legal tech company. I mean, I guess it's a, Broad. I don't know actually how you define the nature of your company. Um, 
but so I mean, you know, so there's certain classes of problems you're running into, and they look a certain way. And then if you're talking to somebody in a pretty different domain, you know, what it takes to say be a physician to be at the top of their practice. Imagine structurally, or at least substantively, it's very different. But maybe structurally, there's some commonalities. So can you think of an example of, you know, with someone else that's you know becoming an expert or a great in some other domain, can you share some a story about some lessons you gleaned from some other area and how it's applied to to yourself and your work? It's uh, you know, a topic that was recently chatted about in our in our circle of diverse of diverse diverse friends was this notion of how do you handle um, the risk of cancel culture at work? You know, as a leader, if you say something wrong your employee base could take it a certain way and you had no intent behind it. Or you could say something with belief and conviction and you know it's right, but it's the population of your organization that that still believes the opposite. And how do you handle those situations with grace and humility, I think applies across all industries, right? Physicians have to deal with that routinely when they give advice and counsel for medical treatment to their patients because their patient may not believe in X, Y, and Z or patients come in with really strong opinions of what a doctor should and should be doing. And I think, you know, we find that those kind of commonalities to talk about and spend hours brainstorming and, and reminiscing of ways to absolve it. If there is no solution, it's to have solace that this just sucks and you've got to deal with it. So that's probably a pretty decent example of kind of how we've as a group had conversations to work through stuff, but um, you know, the, the cancel culture one at work right now, I think it's one that's pretty, pretty ripe and one that, you know, we try to solve, uh, during different times of the year. And so going back to the, the goals that you set, um, how those fair, I mean, do those goals stay pretty static? You, you kept on pursuing those. Did you change those goals? Like, do you still remember exactly what those goals were that you set? Yeah, if we were in my if we were in my home office, I could show you this like legal pad that I've actually written down. So there's two sheets of paper. Uh, the first one was a five year plan broken down by quarters. It's way too descriptive, and then there was one behind it that was um, almost like a twenty year plan that was much more high level. And I have looked at it randomly i've never changed i haven't gone back and like with a red pen updated it i just said that was what i wrote down back then and how am i tracking towards achieving those things and um i think there's an, i think there's a a value of actually handwriting something like that or even versus digital i think digital uh goal setting is great but it's easy to hit delete or hit new document i think so handwriting requires more thought, at least for me. Um, I'd say for certain, you know, you have, you have professional, there was personal, there was monetary, there was civic, there was familial, there's like five tracks that kind of created. I would say for most of them, I'm on track, maybe, or like 80% there. A couple of them, I'm like 150% of target, right? So we've, it's, it felt good knowing that you have to pivot along the way, you're making different decisions. I, I wrote that document when I was a, a lawyer and I'm far from that today. So I had, a goal, I had planned a life 
as a at that point essentially a lawyer with some entrepreneurship blended in and i ended up nowhere near being a lawyer long term i'm in software i'm in private equity and it's a completely different arena um but those goals i have checked in on them along the way to say this is what i wrote am i that to me 25 year old avanish felt this was a happy world to be in um i'm now 40 does that feel right did i have the right intent back then so my wife asked me like am i going to redo my next 15 20 years when i'm 45 um, i haven't decided yet i don't know if i want to have targets for the next phase of my life or career i think i, I just want to live it i think and see what happens but you know i definitely told myself that uh, between now and 45 i want to be really intent in my career and what i did and, and have an outcome that makes sense can you share some of the goals that you set? Uh, there was some around like how much, you know, how, what capacity of giving could I be in to help the community, whether it's donations or uh, other things that we could do. Um, another one was being married and having, um, having a kid. Um, those are achieved. Uh, next one was spending time with parents, probably where I'm 80% of my target. Cause it's, it's, even though they live close, it's really hard to navigate that, um, on the fiscal side, like of cash, um, I had a dollar figure that I wanted to have as assets by the age of 45. And I think I hopefully will be three, 400% of that. So, you know, it, it was really specific. I actually wrote down the dollar figure I wanted to have in my savings account at different ages along the way. Um, so it was a way to at least have some measurement along the way. Cause you need some metric based goal setting. Can't just be like, I want to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Like that's, that's one outcome. But if you want to have a long-term base, it's like having a stick along the way that you can measure again. So, um, and those are, those are kind of high level stuff that I've had on that sheet. And it's visible. It's on my, it's on my desk at home. It's folded up and I actually saw it last night. That's cool. And so then how did you make that? That's, that's, uh, Emily did that, I think pretty uncommon. And so then how did you make that actual for yourself? So I know that you said you broke down by quarters, but like, yeah, yeah. He's a of things out, but like, it's one thing to say that it's one thing to like actually make it happen. So like how, on a weekly basis, let's say, how do you, how do you think about the goals you're hitting on a, on a weekly basis or a monthly basis? I'm not sure how you do it. And what are the things you do to actually hit those goals? Or so, uh, I think for a long time now, every Monday or sometime early in the week, I do write down like, I think no more than five things that get done that week. Um, I'm not a daily goal setter. I know some folks will set like three things to do in a given day. At this point, my, I, I just can't predict my day enough to say that I can get something achieved. I don't like setting goals that I can't hit. Maybe I'll set one of the five will be a stretch, but I think as human beings, we have to set achievable goals and stretch goals. You can't just be like all stretchy stuff because if you don't accomplish things, then you get goal fatigue and you'll stop doing it. So um, sometimes my list of five or two things are really tactical and easy to do. And I know I'll get them done regardless of time. Uh, one is like, I must get done. It will require intent and things like that. And then a couple of like real stretchy stuff. Um, and that's helped at least in the last three or four years, make sure I get this next run of my life under control because there's so much happening being the CEO of the company that you can lose sight of the small wins and things you have to do along the way to the bigger objective. I think if you look back, 
if I look back earlier in my life and career, I didn't do weekly stuff. But I did. That's why the quarterly stuff made sense because you could set one or two things done, one or two things to do in a quarter. So when I was a lawyer, I was like, I want to get five new clients or I want to go bill these many hours this this, this quarter. Because um, at least that got into the habit of achieving success. Uh, it doesn't work all parts of my life. I can't sell, I can't like set health goals. I can't be like, I want to work out three days a week. I will never hit that objective. I'm able to do, <laughs> I can hit my career objectives. I can hit my other objectives, but there are certain ones I know I can't. So I, I don't even set those goals anymore because I think for me, you have to have a sense of, a, of, of being able to achieve it to set it. And so I guess the, the natural question about that is how have your, let's say in the past several years, how have your priorities shifted? So you probably had, you know, you've been using the schools that you've set, you know, when you're in your mid twenties, 25, it sounds like. And it sounds like you've, you know, hit some, broadly speaking, it seems like you hit on them and some of them you, you, you've even exceeded. But so have you shifted in priorities in these goals and say, actually, like, these are more important than others or some yeah. of the changes that you're going through? So there's almost zero goals in my near term that's like, I want to hang out with, I want to have, I want to go do, I want to do fun stuff, like friends related stuff, right? All my goals are how much time I spend with my wife and my kid, uh, make sure I'm home for dinner, make sure I do you know, as many pickups and dinners and drop offs as I can a given day. Um, so they're really, they're really focused and targeted on things that are meaningful to me, uh, regardless of my circle. So even with my friend circle, I'm like, I still need to be selfish and do what I need to do. Um, uh, and I spend probably zero time at this point making sure someone else is happy besides my wife and kid, maybe my parents. But we really, you know, as a unit, that's number one. And I keep that top of mind. So all goals trickle off that. And um, that gives me the time that gives me the time I need to get stuff done. I add nothing else to the Rolodex. If it's not um, unit one, and if it's not the company, then pretty much everything else just falls off. There's no reason for it to even show up on the list at this point. I don't know if you think that this way, but are there things that you're doing for yourself so you can show up for, let's say your number of goals for your family. So are there things that you're doing for yourself to make sure that happens? Yeah, part of it's I kill myself. So I wake up at like five and do phone calls from like five to six thirty to seven in that range. That way I can do breakfast and help with getting her ready, go out, get ready for school. And then I, I grind then from like eight to four. Uh, and then I make sure I, I try to be around for pick up and dinner. That's not hundred percent perfect. Like, you know, I probably miss one or two of these activities a week and then I'll log back on to work every night from 8 PM on. So I stretch my day and I stretch my uh, productivity uh, from a time start to time end to give myself four and a half hours in the middle of the day to hang out when she's awake and not in school. And I get to you know, be part of all those things you want to have. Uh, that's how I've managed it. And that's how, that's good. That's given me the greatest relief uh, and fulfillment. Cause I think if I just was someone that worked and didn't get those moments, then I would probably not be a good leader in the business or a good partner at home or a good dad. So I, I, I personally, at this point, put it on myself to, to stretch where I need to, to make sure I'm available for those four hours a day. How busy are you now compared to other phases of your career? Uh, um, this is the busiest I've been. Um, 
Uh, and I used to mentor at this high school in Chicago where I remember I asked like these freshmen or sophomore, you know, what they want to do when they grow up and they're all like saying celebrity names or, you know, uh, entrepreneurs and stuff. And there's an interesting like notion to celebrities and people that have uh, stardom or great business leaders is like they just fell on that. They got lucky and they just fell on that money or they fell on that shame. There's a lot of work that goes into this, right? Even, uh, uh, you know, even Jay-Z works at from 5 a.m. till 2 a.m. and probably doesn't drink during the week or even on the weekend. The right things he's boozing and partying, but it's all intent, right? It's all an image. So anybody that wants to be successful in any given field or anything they want to be good at, whether it's the Olympics, you know, being an athlete, those folks are exercising and working out 18 hours a day to, to be the top of their game. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes energy. So, you know, we're in a phase of the business now where it's massive growth. Um, we're, we're being really successful with our customers. We don't, I don't want to lose out on opportunity because we've taken an eye off the prize. Um, and we're scaling really fast. You know, we went from a business that was 85 employees in 2016 to around 700 by the end of this year. And that requires just a lot of diligence, a lot of intent, purpose, planning. So this is definitely the busiest I've been, for sure. And the goal kind of mindset um, and application of those goals and making them um, tangible and, and achievable is that a process you've applied to your company or is that something that's just like specific for you? Does that work? At company? Yeah, no, yeah, we don't, we apply to the company too. You know, we set three-year targets and then break it down to annual targets and then quarterly targets and then monthly. And then if possible, you go weekly, but uh, A, it creates clarity in the business from the top down, what everybody's working towards. Um, you try to be as metric based as possible. Um, you try to celebrate when you achieve different things, whether it's bookings or product releases. You try to have retrospectives on those good and bad moments to get better for the next run. And uh, I think, again, it's like anything else. You got you to do it. You got to talk about it. You got to tell other people about it because then they hold you accountable. Um, and then uh, you make sure you get a chance to think about the success you just had along the way. But uh, yeah, goal setting is easy. It's just, you know, how do you manage it once you've set it? You know, what's the, how intent are you to actually do it? And like I said, I'm not that intent in doing like health goals today, but maybe that's my target after 45 is like, that's my priority. But right now my priority is grinding and making this happen. So you have to have intent and desire to achieve to set those goals. So what is the intent that you're setting for Matera? Yeah, so, you know, our first, our goal recently was to get to be a $200 million business, and we feel like that's in sight in the next six to seven months. We are in the middle of thinking about the next chapter of the business. I love to see it double in size in the next three or four years. Um, uh, we want to continue to solve problems that, uh, that lawyers face day in, day out with, you know, creating content, doing deals, litigating. Uh, managing their data in a way that makes sense and, and just be a really good partner to firms globally uh, and have a longevity of that. So you know, I think we have a really good opportunity in front of us to um, 
be the market leader for 10, 20, 30 years uh, for what we do. And uh, I have no desire of losing to the competition. So we're really focused on client engagement, happiness that leads to long-term growth for us. So I think we we're planning around or building plans around how, how do we scale this business for the next chapter, hopefully double in size. And so is there any sort of analog you have to the kind of company you're trying to build or, or is there some other industry where you say, okay, well, this is the kind of uh, holding you want to have in the industry? You know, nothing 100% lines up. You know, you try to look at pieces of other organizations. They've all got their pros and cons of analysis. But, you know, look at kind of how Salesforce has approached the market with, um, uh, interaction that a, uh, an end user has with the basic CRM. And then over time, they've added other ancillary things that make sense from proposal generation to quoting to pricing. And then you look at kind of how SAP has managed to grow with um, a binder of opportunities and look at Dell from a hardware perspective. I think we, we try to emulate where it makes sense um, and then try to do lessons learned of things that didn't make sense. So we want to have a good user experience. We want people that are, that are happy to work with us. We want uh, lawyers to really enjoy technology and make sure that it works for them. Uh, and then we want to say sorry if we get it wrong and make it better. So we try to find the best places to emulate. And then where we think we're better, we try to put our head down and focus on that. But, you know, this tech, this, this industry of law is nowhere near the size and scale of other industries, but it's one that's very captive. And if you're a brand that um, maintains a level of trust, integrity, and quality, you have a long runway with the, with the firms and lawyers. So that's what we focus on. And so how is the opportunity you're identifying change now versus when you first moved into the role? Yeah, good question. So when I first came on board, we, we had a very humble target. Can we fix the drafting process that lawyers face, right? Um, it is the most boring thing you could try to fix. Uh, putting words on paper. But when you step back, words on paper is what pays bills, right? That's what um, someone is hiring a lawyer for, whether it's a husband and wife creating their first trust in a state, whether it's a small business owner uh, defending themselves from a slip and fall, it's all words on paper. And uh, it's a very disjointed way of working today. And we, I think we're making it better. You have to use different vendors. You have to start from scratch. You have to unwind documents. I think our first mission back in uh, late 2016, early 2017 was to solve that. So we went out and bought the best brands in the space to fix a very uh, humble problem of putting words on paper. And that yielded great success for us in the first few years of me being here. Since then, we've said, wow, we did a good job there. Um, the firms trust us to look at more opportunities. So we went out and expanded our lens and say, what else can we fix? So then the first workflow we went to after drafting was transaction management. So we built the first global transaction management platform, allowing people to do M&A transactions, fund formations, you know, commercial real estate transactions online. And then we got to litigation management, helping legal teams collaborate online on creating timelines for expert witness prep, deposition prep, um, and then we got to data management and firm intelligence saying, how can we use data at a firm to increase the matter management proficiencies, increase the experience that firms have with business development. Uh, and I think that has a long runway for us going forward. So 
we started with this humble view of, of consolidating a bunch of vendors to build a good drafting solution to saying, can we now consolidate a bunch of workflows under one umbrella um, that a firm can stay with one vendor and get more work done uh, and have confidence on the product set. So it's, it's just really changed from, uh, I would say, uh, a simple workflow to, to really solving massive, massive problems and opportunities at firms today. So we've been very fortunate and lucky along the way to have really good clients and customers to work with that give us good ideas, good feedback that we just put back on our product and our investment thesis. And, and so that leads to the question I was just wondering is like, what is that customer discovery like? Because I mean, I think when I think about lawyers in my experience, and it's the lawyers so much are incentivized by the billable hours. So they're not yeah. incentivized to work on efficiency. And they're not, you know, so much about law firms structurally hasn't changed much in say 20 years, uh, maybe longer if you want to look at, depending on the lens you want to look at. So, you know, with that, how are you gathering information about the things you can improve? Because I feel like so many times you talk where, hey, what could you improve? They'll say, oh, not much, things are just fine. So we start with some pretty clear focus areas for the business. So we make, about four years ago, designed these three focus areas for us to always improve and have an impact on with all of our decisions. So one is, can we help lawyers uh, improve their client retention, right? So clients can buy legal services from anybody this day and age, right? They can just actually go online and search and find hourly rates and go hire someone to do something. You know, I fundamentally believe that clients will stay with lawyers and partners if that firm can produce high quality work on time and on budget over and over again. And the areas that we haven't impacted historically as an industry is quality. I think we're doing that now saying we want less errors in documents. We want you to have clean paperwork for us to look at. I don't want to catch an old party's name in a document ever again. We think we can impact time with technology. So I don't think of it as efficiency. I think of it as meeting deadlines. And then third is budget. So what can we do to remove unbillable time from a project, allowing folks to focus on higher value tasks that meet budget requirements? So that's number one. Number two is, can we help the firm and lawyer increase their margin potential? Can they, again, remove waste in the process, focus on higher value tasks, which always gets paid for? Can we help them look at prior work to determine future pricing and budgeting for matters? So again, from, from top to bottom, can help you build a matter at the day one the right way with the right pricing, the right team? And then finally, can we make sure you do the work in the most effective way possible? And then finally, the third area we focus on is end user happiness. So, you know, lawyers and partners, we know you, we know they work at after hours, right? Most, most first, second, third year associates are working after hours. What can we do with technology to help them feel confident that when they're working those hours, the outcome at 7 a.m. Is, is as good as possible. What can we do to give partners resources so that way they know what's happening in their matters so they know how to have an impact conversation with their client. So with that focus, those three focus areas, we've been, we've been solving some really critical areas. And the challenge I give back to partners that bring up, well, I don't want you to impact my billable hour is, have we reviewed how much of the time you spend today actually gets either A, even on a bill or B, is recovered from the bill? I buy legal services today. We redline every invoice we get because we're like, our technology solves this. Our technology solves this. Well, I'm not paying for it. Like we know, why would I pay for you to create a first draft? 
first draft should not take you five hours anymore. A first draft of anything should take 90 minutes, right? You should be able to get first drafts of something done pretty quick this day and age, a workable first draft. You shouldn't spend 18 hours proofreading a 500-page document. You shouldn't be spending this much time doing other things. Now, if you remove all that waste of typical unbillable time and allow those folks to think about theory, client development, business development, new ways of finding revenue for the business, isn't that a better time spent than having to do things that no one likes to see on the bill anymore? So, you know, efficiency is definitely a, a hard word to come across. So I think of more risk management. I think of meeting, meeting expectations of time without killing yourself and then having high quality of work going out at the right price. So it's hard to argue against those few things, I think, for any solo practitioner all the way up. Solo practitioners typically are doing fixed fee work too. If you're doing fixed fee work, it's all about how efficient you are, right? The faster you get something out at a fixed fee, the better your margins are. So why wouldn't you want to use technology for that? It's not, it's not about how many hours you spend doing something. It's how fast you get out the door. So there's definitely different ways, different angles look at technology and why you invest in that, I think. Are there any clients that you're, you know, are there any kinds of lawyers or types of firms that you're not going after? Um, you know, I hate to say that we don't go after a certain demographic. You know, we have great opportunities with trust and estate lawyers, but that's a tough area to get into. You know, IP attorneys can have um, some great results with our technology, but I've learned over time that IP attorneys just like to have things done their own way. So we try, we're not quite in that game yet, but I think hopefully in the future we'll be. Um, we're just entering litigation um, really, really healthily. And I think we have a long runway there. What you're seeing probably an area we're not getting really good at today is those small regional needs that a practitioner may have. Um, you know, we, it, it look like New York, Chicago, Illinois, look at California, Texas, those four states typically have a lot of great state technology being developed because the volume is so great. But if you look at like, if you're a, a practitioner in Oklahoma, who's, you know, what's happening in your local state or city that you could use technology for. So we're not quite at that level yet, but I love to have an impact in all 50 states um, to some degree. But right now, we, we unfortunately, we, a lot of our focus goes to the big four states. Um, so I think there's opportunities there for folks to develop technology for localized regional needs. And then over time, those become really uh, strong areas for us to go look for acquisitions and then say, you know, you've built something, we would love to use it globally, and then we can get an opportunity to put together. So let's say, I mean, it sounds like, um, so litigation is maybe a new area. So maybe um, it's when you want to make more inroads. And let's take something, let's say M&A. What are the things that Latera knows about M&A practice that many or most M&A practices don't know about their own practice? What are the insights you have about what makes your successful M&A practice that M&A practices don't even know about themselves? So there's a, there's a couple we could probably talk about. The one that I think goes unrecognized, and I only we only have this lens today because we've been the client so many times on M&A deals, is the client experience today in an M&A transaction is not good. Even if, you, even if the firm tells us that they're going to give us white glove service on a deal, that's not white glove service. 
And it may have been white glove service back in the 90s or 2000s. But the expectations of clients today when we all live on this device, right? We all live on an iPhone. Most people now live on an iWatch or live on their Android device. Um, why are we still doing things that are from the 2000s? And there isn't a single client that I could, I would argue is happy with the way we engage in M&A transactions today. This should be a happy moment for most founders to sell their company. This should be an exciting time for people to realize a liquidity event for the hard work they've done. And the process doesn't allow for that. Um, there's too much risk in the process. We're not doing enough due diligence of the documents that are in the transaction. Lawyers will routinely say, which of the top 10, which contracts we look at? Give us 10 contracts of a thousand to look at. That's not the right way to do, to do due diligence. Due diligence. Like, you need to review every contract, but we can't because it's too expensive. Um, we should have zero wet signatures today. There's absolutely no reason for a wet signature. Um, so there's a lot of stuff like that where I think law firms still believe white glove services give us more associates to throw at the throw at the firm at the client, and that's not the case. As a, again, as a buyer of legal services, the last thing I want to see is an email to me with ten other people on it. It doesn't make it doesn't make sense, right? And this is not me trying to force technology. I'm just like I don't like that feeling that. I'm getting an email like this. And then if I respond, are all 10 people going to take five minutes to dock their time, right? So we, there's just kind of be recognition that white glove service isn't the same that it was in the 80s, 90s, 2000s. Like it has evolved. And I think the firms that are evolving, there are some great ones out there that are evolving and they're really thinking about how to engage with their clients long-term. They may end up being the long-term winners here. And everybody else will just be following in the next 10, 20 years to catch up. But we have to recognize that you have to be nimble, you have to be agile, and you have to be open to new ways of doing work. Now, the pandemic should have been the catalyst for a lot of change. And a lot of us will argue it wasn't enough. And there wasn't enough investment in innovation or ideation during this period to evolve the industry. Some happened, but not enough. So something you talked about earlier, because uh, you talked you talk a lot about how your experience has, you know, the buyer of legal services that informs, you know, your vision for the product. You mentioned really some of the goals you're setting, you know, were for helping the clients, that is the law firms, um, you know, develop the practices and say, uh, you know, maybe find new areas of growth. Um, but then you also talked about the, the, you know, the, their clients, you know, the clients of the law firm as well. So is there some tension between, you know, trying to optimize the experience of the law firm versus the law firm client? How do you resolve that, I guess? It's difficult. You know, we spend time with some of the large corporates out there just showing them what we provide as opportunities of investments by law firms, right? Law firms have access to this type of technology. What do you think about your outside counsel using it? And that creates conversation then between the client and outside counsel say, hey, we just saw a great litigation management tool. How come we're not using that in all of our cases? All right, so that's another way we, we, we try to influence change management to say, I think your clients want you to do this. Um, we've you know, they would like for to have greater visibility and transparency in what's happening. Uh, whether it's our tool or not, you should start considering how to increase your spend or investment in these areas. Uh, so we try to bridge that gap where we can as much as possible. 
And I think another thing that you talked about is you, you talked about this very he M&A heavy uh, approach to uh, synthesizing different workflows and, and, and making more unified workflow. Um, is that distinct about Latera as compared to other op other players in, I guess, broadly speaking, legal tech? Is that is that a unique strength that you have, or is that something that you're seeing uh, as other operators are, are effectively using as well? No, I think it's been a growth lever. It's been around for you know decades. You know, half of our growth in a given year comes from M and A, half comes from just selling our technology and having um, success there. What I would say is unique about Latera is we we bring good software M&A methodologies to our business and we try to run a really strong integration playbook. We have a great partner in our ownership that is willing to make investments and in making sure integrations go well for the long run. We're not looking for short-term wins. We're looking for real long-term sustainable solutions. And by having that lens to the long-term by running a really strong playbook, I think we've had, fortunately, knock on wood, strong success in M&A and post-M&A uh, opportunities. Can't speak to the other folks in the space that do this, but for us, it's because it's so strong of our DNA and it's half of what we do here as a business, you know, we take it seriously and it's not just uh, buy to have fun, but we there's intent, there's a purpose, there's a goal, there's objectives, there's roadmaps that are built for each deal and we look at them and we measure them do we hit them do we not do we overachieve um and then we we refine it and say for the next deal what do we learn from the last one to become better for the next one so we're we want to be because otherwise if we mess up our ability to go back to a customer and sell them something new goes away so we're willing to go slower we're willing to have a little more intent in our m a a little more intent in our integration work to make sure we maintain trust and integrity with our customers. Otherwise, you know, they, they, why would they trust us in the future to do right by them? So we, um, we've been fortunate. So I, I don't think it's unique to us. I think other player, other people do this in the industry and it's the right approach to uh, innovation and scale. Uh, but, you know, you just have to make sure you do it right and you spend the time and energy to do the post. It's easy to buy. It's the effort and actually the integration work. The buying part's the easiest part of the whole thing. It's how much planning you go into the back end. That's the important piece. What would you say is the most successful purchase you've made? Well, we've had a lot. I mean, I don't think we've had a, we've been very, again, lucky. I think we've hit um, the market at the right time with the investments we've made. Um, I've been, you know, pleasantly surprised with some of the technology we bought back in the 2017, some of the early investments we made. Um, uh, you know, we bought a piece of technology um, that was being used for hardcore creation of documents. And the underlying code allowed us to build a clause library on the side that no one had really thought about. That was a great uh, opportunity for, for us as a business because that was something we had a plan for, but the end result was another product offering that we didn't know existed there. Uh, we've had some great culture buys where people have come in and changed this business for the better with their new culture and how they approach their business. Um, so, you know, it's hard to say which one is the best, but we've been very lucky that um, every organization that's joined us has brought huge value and, and talent to the business. And you mentioned uh, the ownership, you know, being supportive and in investing in 
your business. So can you tell me what is the ownership? Tell me some more about that. So we are backed by private equity. Um, HG Capital is our primary, is our, is our investor and owner here at, at Latera. Uh, prior to them from 2016, 2019, we we're owned by K1 Capital. Uh, and they've been both really great for, for the brand. So, you know, K1 took us from 16 million to $42 million revenue helped us build the first set of foundation and skill and muscle around M&A and integration work. And then under HG, we've really been focused on bringing the brand out to the rest of the world to really becoming more global in nature, expanding our product and tool set and getting really good at um, customer engagement and happiness so that we have a long runway to go with our, our brand for the future. And, you know, they've brought the business. We, with them, we've taken the business and almost... Um, you know, four or five exited in, in under three years. And uh, I think we have a long runway with them as well. They're, they're really strong investors and believe in this industry uh, for the long run. So we're really working on a 10, 20 year vision here of, of how does Latera become the namestay uh, in legal. And what are reasons to not go public today? Um, you know, it is a, uh, it's a good topic. We're seeing brands go IPO. Um, that's exciting for us as a uh, another player in the space to know that the market is responding well to this industry being investable. Uh, I like the nimbleness of what we have today as a business. We can take risks. We can try different things and not have significant reporting or account- not accountability. There's always accountability. But, you know, you, you can do things that are riskier short-term or long-term and play some interesting bets on the table uh, because you're working with an inv- a single investor that believes in the same thing. When you expand that and go public, there is a fiduciary duty to uh, potentially be more calculated in those things. Maybe take less risks and maybe be less agile and run a more consistent investable approach. So, so, you know, right now for this business, I think we're having a lot of fun. It feels like a startup, even though we've been around since late nineties and we want the nimbleness and being agile in the short term in our decision-making. And we like being aligned with one single investor at this point because we're able to make decisions real quickly. You know, we can hop on the call and talk about something and go do it. We're not having to think about how that's going to impact the quarter or think about, how this can impact our image on the street. We are focused on our customers first and our employees and making sure we do right by them. Uh, if we do right by our customers or employees, our numbers will always follow. And uh, it, feels, it feels good to be in that spot right now. And earlier you were talking about sales and growth. And so what are some of the, uh, the, the pros and cons, like unique advantages or, or, or challenges in selling to lawyers? Like tell me about the, the distribution of your products. The, the most difficult thing to do to sell to law firms is to get the mind share of the lawyer. Even if they want the technology and they believe that it'll help them, it is hard to convince someone to spend the time to learn how to use it because you're taking them away from their day job. So we, we know that. You know, I practice law. There's other folks in this business that practice law. We understand what it is and the problems we're facing and what how a lawyer is measuring their time and how they want to use it. So we think about things in six minute increments and how can we deliver education in five minutes 
versus seven because that's seven if you go seven minutes you've now cut into our blocks so our videos are we try to make things that are digestible in those periods of time we try to align ourselves with cle courses so that way we can talk about something like risk and maybe tie that to our technology as well again giving lawyers a chance to get the cle's they need while learning about what available technology is out there, whether it's ours or someone else's, as a way to get innovation in front of them. Uh, so we look for different ways to get visibility and uh, within a firm. The greatest thing that happens for us is lateral moves, right? A lateral leaves a firm and as a partner somewhere else. They, they bring all the technology they've used along with them and it opens up the eyes of everybody else in the new firm. So, you know, we tr again, if we can maintain good relationships, integrity, and quality of software that I think people just talk about it and it gets out there and makes the buying process easier. Um, so, you know, we just, we try to have an eye of the end user as much as possible and everything that we build and do so that way they find value in it and want to come back to using it. And you mentioned something about CLE, like what are other sorts of media or distribution are you using to just access it and engage and stay, you know, top of mind with these lawyers? Uh, every firm is a different culture. You know, uh, some firms have very rigorous ways of getting technology out. They have innovation groups. They've got their practice heads come together often. There's partner retreats where we can go and show off technology. Um, regional, you know, ABA events are great ways to get out there and show showcase different innovation and technologies available. Um, we obviously do webinars. We created our own TV channel on, on the internet that we broadcasted for three hours a day, live content about different things in the industry. So uh, my, my lens is we have to, at this point in time, we have to be everywhere. It makes sense. And we have to try everything at least twice. And uh, we have to give lawyers every opportunity possible to uh, look at content. Um, and learn from it and have opportunities to it. When we look at our SaaS-based solutions, we can do things like in-app instructions, in-app videos, in-app how-tos to encourage more usage and adoption of technology. So we're looking at all kinds of different ways to garner the time and bandwidth of, a, of, of an attorney to look at technology. And so tell me about, you know, there's, there's any number of lawyers who are taking a look at this and say, they recognize their firm's going to change and, you know, they recognize also that, you know, legal tech is a sentence. So what are the, what are the opportunities that you're, you know, uh, seeing for people who are looking to leave, let's say big law and move into legal tech? Like, you know, this is something that, you know, it's a, it's a very different field now than when you entered it, you know, and I, we can talk some more about your, your, your history um, that preceded Matera. but what are the opportunities that you think, uh, you know, like people that are, in big law, have experience, like you say, they practice law, they understand it. What are the opportunities that you're seeing for them moving into legal tech? There are definitely more opportunities today than there were five, 10 years ago. Uh, we started hiring for a position called evangelists. And this ended up being people that practice law or have been CIOs or directors of KM I wanted to get back out in the marketplace and talk about our technology, but technology in general, just to go out and talk about it and be a force in that space. I think more and more vendors now have this role created because it just makes sense. The other area we're seeing 
good opportunities for, for forward thinking attorneys that want to transition out of practices, potentially product management. So actually having um, understand the science of product, product management and uh, helping technology companies build software that's and user focus is important. So I think product management's an area where we'd be excited to find some attorneys that are interested in that. Uh, client service is always a great one. So we are now hiring partners and associates to help us drive adoption of our technology at Firm. So Firm X buys our transaction management tool. What can we do as partners and associates at Latera to go out and help them spin up a deal and help them run a deal so they learn about it? So I think more and more there are opportunities being created in software companies like Latera and other ones where lawyers can pivot. They can say, I like being a lawyer, but I like increasing the adoption of technology more. And I like to see the practice of law evolve from where it is today. And I like the speed of software development. Then, you know, there's a lot of opportunities at this point. I think if you're motivated and you have the skills, it's probably hard not to find something that you would like to do in, in, in software development. And so you've been, you know, you've been growing the software company. And so, uh, and now it's, it's huge. And so it's just, you're, you're in this other niche now, but let's say you had, um, with what you know now, uh, let's say you were to uh, start all over again and launch a software company directed to law. Now, let's say you had a hundred thousand dollars to work with and capital work with, uh, and maybe that's your runway. Um, what would you do? Yeah, as much as I, I, I'm not a fan when these these technologies get created because there's a, I, there's the the fun thing about your question is there are more startups today in legal founded by lawyers than there were five years ago, and a lot more from ten years ago. So what I would say is if you have a problem or workflow in front of you that you just suffer day in day out. Um, you should just build a solution for it. It's not that hard as day and age to find a development team that will work with you to build a solution. Good example, Haley Altman started a company called Doxley. Haley was a transactional corporate lawyer and then a partner and had a problem with dealing with the transactions she was on for her clients and then built the online platform to solve for it. Uh, that technology we acquired, she came along and now she's running corporate development for us. Uh, another lawyer out of London created a small proofreading tool called XREF that we also acquired and moved on because that lawyer, Travis, got tired of proofreading 400-page documents looking for the same eight things and went and got a small team of developers to say, can you look for these eight things so I can stop looking for them and built a company around it. So the biggest roadblock isn't ideation. I think people have ideas all the time of things they hate to do, they want to fix with technology. The challenge that I put out there is, do you have the guts to do it? Because capital at this point is not hard to come by, actually. Uh, resourcing and finding developers to do the work is not hard to come by. The problems are being identified left and right. Ideation's there. It's who are the lawyers that are going to have the guts to go out there and start something. Because there is now an ecosystem of buyers. There's an ecosystem of investors. There's an ecosystem of companies like ours that are looking to buy innovative tech to bring into our umbrella there is no better time than now to be a founder of a software company focused on legal. 
the problems we've, we've identified and work on are the big ones. There is a lot of stuff that is nuanced by region, nuanced by practice group. Uh, even within MA, there's things that are nuanced that we currently don't look at. We don't look at today um, corporate formalities and how they're intertwined with each other. But there's other there's two founders out there that have created stuff that we're interested in. So there's all these things out there that people create to solve their nuanced issue that we we're not going to look at today, but we will look at over time. Um, so there's actually no reason not to be a a software startup at this point. Look at how many labs there are, right? You have MDR Labs at Mishkan. You've got Denton's has a lab. Clifford Chance has a lab. All these firms are creating labs for technology um, and innovation. This is the time, if there ever was one, to go try something um, and give it a shot. It just requires, you know, a little bit of guts to go do it. And so what would be the characteristics of the ideal company for you to acquire? I mean, let's say, I mean, if I wanted to build a company and say, you know, my goal is that, you know, this is something that's going to be part of the Latera family, you know, what, what are the characteristics of that company that makes it ideal? Yeah, we like things that over time can become mission critical that, you know, without it, once people have it, without it, it's a problem. Um, we like things that have high recurring revenue. So no, no very low to no services required to get the technology up. Um, and I personally like things that are, uh, centered around the end users so focus on the lawyer and improving the lawyer's life a bit. Those are the basics. I mean, those are like the high level things. If you can do those three things then we'll always have a conversation. And then it comes down to is the way you solve the problem, the way we would solve the problem, or do you take a whole different lens that doesn't match our desire? So for example, is we believe all drafting technology should live inside Microsoft Word. And we shouldn't have a pop-up window taking you to our ecosystem to do work, but you should try to do everything inside Word because the longer you're in Word, the greater the effectiveness and efficiencies they are. So there's certain things like that that we probably would have hard lines on, but otherwise, yeah, I think high recurring revenue businesses, almost mission critical, good retention rates so the customers have bought from you more than one year are all investable things for us to look at. So when you said that just now, and partly you're talking about culture as well. So I'm thinking about, you know, platforms in the tech world, say like, you know, I think what TechCrunch, maybe more historically, the role it used to have or Hacker News today, or maybe Product Hunt. You know, I think these are media platforms that have been instrumental in launching different companies. Um, so looking at the landscape for legal tech today, are, are there media platforms or, or, or similar sort of platforms that you're looking at and saying, hey, this is like, kind of a, a hub spot of innovation and you know we're going to see more good stuff coming out of this uh not necessarily media but you're seeing like i said like i mentioned before you're seeing there's probably 20 25 law firms out there that have created really good innovation hubs internally where they're incubating their own lawyers ideas or they're allowing third-party lawyer, outside lawyers to come join their incubation to help them build their ideas out um uh you know we'll be announcing here soon you know, a couple of firms that we have bought technology off of. So they've built it internally, they've incubated it, a lawyer solved a problem they had internally. We think it has global appeal. So we structured a deal to acquire the tech. Um, so you're seeing that opportunity come up more and more for us as well to say, hey, you guys, you, guys, you guys did a good job. You built a good tech. We, love, we think it's got mass appeal. Would you want us to take it out off your hands and go, you know, maybe we'll, you know, royalty-free license from us forever. We'll manage it, but we want to go sell it too. So, you know, you're. I think 
that's where we find a lot of innovation for software and legal is coming out of these, um, you know, hubs and incubators that law firms have created. And so with the, you know, the skills that lawyers should be thinking about acquiring now. So when you talk about, you know, there's direct moves you can make, you know, into the kind of different roles you described, you know, product management and evangelists and similar types of roles. Let's talk about skills. What are the skills you think that lawyers, uh, you know, who really want to, you know, um, expand the possibilities of what their practice can permit and then not, and then not limit themselves to just legal practice. What are the kinds of skills you think every lawyer should be thinking about getting or, it doesn't have to be, of course, it's not gonna be a one size fits all. There's gonna be different categories. Like you're saying, there's there's sales, there's you know, product management, there's different categories of skills, but what are the different categories or roles, I should say, but what are the different categories of skills you think lawyers should be cultivating? Besides unmuting themselves on Teams calls, because that's still uh, a skill that we're learning. Uh, I would say number one is um, how to collaborate with your clients virtually. That's a skill that needs to be expanded upon, professionalized quickly. Um, this was the opportunity to do it with the pandemic, was to figure out how to have a long-term game plan on collaboration and how do you leverage things like Microsoft Teams to be successful in keeping your clients informed, to work with them, to share ideas and collaborate on documents together. I think the firms and attorneys that figure that out really well and adopt that as a go forward methodology along with email to collaborate um, are gonna be successful. I think those that rely on traditional methodologies for collaboration and still wanna have a face-to-face -face for every meeting or wanna mail you documents for review or um, only leverage email, I think, you're, I think it's gonna have there's a marketplace for that that will exist for a period of time, but it's not the long game. I think the long game is adopting these new ways of collaborating and working into your day-to-day -day operations. Um, you can't shy away from it. It's, it's a disservice, I think, to the marketplace to shy away from uh, tools at work that really enhance work productivity and client experience and not bring it into your fold. That's, and that's not a space that we're in today. That's, a, that's, that's, that's not meant to sell the terror tools. That's really meant to be like that to me is a place where we just have to get better as an industry and leverage that asset in a way that makes a lot of sense. I've given you thoughts here, let's say in the concept of litigation. I mean, so much about how litigation proceeds is based on what judges uh, direct and so much of what judges direct is based on what they understand. Uh, so, you know, there's any number of judges who have really advanced understanding of e-discovery and then they're able to have, you know, uh, be able to make some pretty good calls because they say, hey, I understand what's feasible here, what isn't feasible, and what's reasonable, what isn't. So is there any thoughts that Latera has had with educating the judiciary with, you know, what are the options out there and, and, and how that game's going to change? You know, it's probably an inappropriate thing to say, but we haven't, right? And that's a dis now that you've flagged it, now that you've said it, we probably haven't spent enough time there. We've done some, we've had some conversations with DOJ about what's available, what are, what, are, what are people using in technology that you don't have. So when you go into cases, just so you're aware, this firm may have X, Y, and Z at their, at their fingertips and what are you using to keep up with that? It hasn't been at the judgeship level, right? We haven't gone to the Cook County Courthouse and said, all the judges, let's get together and talk about 
the platforms that are available to you or what what are people doing to file cases on uh, in your court? That's a good flag. I think it's probably one, now that you've mentioned it, it's going to be something that I want to think about how we do that because that's the full circle on litigation then is you know, making sure they have an understanding of what's happening in this space. I don't think they do because you still have carbon copy happening at some courthouses, right? Who are still filling out court orders on carbon copy paper. So there's things that there's things to work on. And I, I think we probably have not done a, We have not done a good job. I mean, probably we have not done a good job in that space. Yeah, last I was at the Daily Center, yes, there was carbon. This is a few years now, but yes, there actually was carbon copy. Yeah, I haven't been at the Daily Center since uh, 08 or 09, but I've imagined it hasn't gone away. Yeah, the, my knowledge is as of, I'd say, 2015. So there you go. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I think that's a good idea. And then, of course, there's any number of judges. You know, I, I can think of a judge for the Northern District of Illinois who, you know, drafts the discovery rules. And so he, that judge would probably be the kind of person to talk to. And so yeah. there's going to be corresponding people in other jurisdictions that those are the yeah. people who are probably be the most knowledgeable and, and probably the most open to it. Right. Right. We had some, you know, in the past, not recently in the past, we've had some conversations with like the ABA and other folks around what are ethical standards we should have with lawyers knowing technology. Uh, we let other people influence those things, uh, but we, you know, do have a strong comment on like, obviously, I think it's, again, not just to promote Latera technology, but if you hide, hide in a cave with your briefcase and never think about how technology can reduce the risk of your work, then that's the service, right? So um, I think more and more we'll see those ethical requirements get stringent on using technology to reduce risk in the practice of law. Now, I want to go back to your history a little more, but actually to do that, uh, I, I actually want to kind of go forward. So let's say, you know, a few years from now, you feel like, you know, you've achieved your goals with this company, you've grown the way that you want to, and kind of analogous to the goals that you set for yourself personally, you said, hey, you know, I set these goals, I achieved them, I don't really want to have goals now. And maybe another way of saying that is, uh, I don't really, you know, need to continue to grow this company. I've kind of done what made the mark that I need to make a mark on this company. You need to pick something else to work on. Um, what else would you, what's another industry you pick? If you weren't working legal tech, what, what industry would you want to be working in right now? Uh, education. That's probably, that's been top of mind since my mid twenties. Um, you know, I think if we think about all of the, uh, all, if we think about some of the problems that we face in not just this country but now more globally which i would say wasn't the case in my 20s is just lack of education and lack of uh inquisitive nature from uh from folks coming out of like high school and so i think to have a material impact on the next few generations and having people come out with innovative ideas i think we've got to start I don't want to say we got to start. People are starting it, but it's an area where I want to have an impact. And I think it's an area where I'll spend, I think more, more of my time going forward um, as we transition to the next phase of our lives. Um, it's just really keen to me to find whether it's just local community efforts or statewide or whatever, how can we increase the number of people graduating from high school uh, I'm less concerned with my my lens is less concerned on college, but it's more on high school graduation rates, um, and 
because that's important. And I think you can make an impact on high school graduation rates if you have influenced uh, kids in seventh and eighth grade. So it's finding those areas of, of material impact where we can have long-term opportunities for innovation, ideation, understanding, empathy. So that's been always back in my mind of areas I want to help and be a part of. Uh, I do not have the solutions, nor will I ever have the solutions, but I want to make sure I'm contributing to it in whatever meaningful way I can. Um, uh, And that's been, since we've been capable, it's been an area of investment for us on the side for the last three or four years too. And so when you say investments are these into companies or what, what are you investing? It's directly, it's directly, you know, we try to directly impact the schools and make sure um, they have the resources capable and, and teachers aren't thinking about how they're going to take care of supplies or how they're going to do all those type of things. So, um, uh, so for me, you know, education is going to be where I put some thought energy behind for the next hopefully 20, 30 years. It seems like a lot of that is, you know, messaging because you were talking before about, you know, some of the younger, you know, the kids who are just like, hey, you know, I want to have this kind of outcome, whatever. And they're not maybe thinking necessarily about the work that goes into that or, you know, how do you work backwards from that? You know, know, Jay-Z has accomplished certain things, but like, you know, working backwards, how did he do that? Yeah, there's some of that. There's, There's definitely some just storytelling around what achievement looks like and how do you get there. And then uh, B is, I think, there's a um, uh, a greater need today than ever for people to feel like they've achieved something. And I think when you, if we look back at our growing up, when we grew up, what's the first thing you can remember as a strong achievement? Uh, driver's license test. Um, not many folks talk about their eighth grade graduation, right? What's that? I'm thinking SAT, but yeah. Yeah, just thinking high school, right? It's high school. High school is your, your first memories of achievement. So yeah, SAT, ACT, driver license test, and it culminates onto your diploma, right? And um, we have, I think part of my goal setting too, right? You need, to ha- you need to do things that are achievable and you need to achieve them. And then you need to reflect on the achievement to move forward. So if we can have more people have that achievement, reflect on it i just think there's a better chance for an outcome over time you know looking back you were talking about cancel culture earlier and some of the concerns you have about that um so can you i use i probably, I probably use the wrong word with cancel culture because but yeah i go ahead <laughs> yeah um, that's fine yeah but yeah so i mean tell me some more about you know some of the changes you're seeing in in, in how business is being done and t- tell me some more about you know the DNI component that you're seeing as yeah. affecting your business and then um, your clientele. Oh. I think most leaders try their best and we have a lot of pressure on us to not just be individuals and have our own individual thoughts. We have to have the thoughts of leadership and how we're going to impact our employees to have some thought. And then you have to have a a point of view that the customers want to hear from. And then um, there's a growing sense of population that thinks that corporations are people and that they should act and behave in a certain way. So I think most leaders try their best. 
and we try to not impact our own beliefs and feelings into the business because that's inappropriate. But we do take stands and we do, again, most people are taking positions uh, that they feel transcends their own beliefs because they're so they're so big so when we do those things uh you, you get you, you can get there's a percentage of people that give you flack for that because you're just coming on um you're just joining with the pan the, the bandwagon they believe but i think we have to be given the chance as leaders to have a voice make a statement once in a while and and not be shunned by that because I think we're entering a world now where some of us are fearing having a position. Um, and right or wrong, it's, it's a fear, right? I'm a human being. And, you know, we, we, we try to always do right by all 600 employees of ours. Um, and uh, sometimes we get, we get it wrong and, um, uh, we do get it wrong. We say, sorry, and we try to adjust and, and get better. Yeah, and we. I think for me, it's a, it's a it's a general like right now. It's it's very heightened that the the scale of acceptance of a potential misstep is so small. You have a very small window and a very small uh, gradient to even have a misstep that you choose not to even take steps because it's safer not to. Uh, so it's, it's, it's interesting. It's a very interesting spot to be in. Um, as a leader, I've taken the stance of I'm, uh, I'm willing to play in that gradient and still make positions, um, for the brand and for myself, uh, and take the fallout as it may. I think they're the right things to do. I think like human rights are basic things that we have to be okay talking about. We have to be okay with, uh, standing up for each other anywhere in the world. We have to give all of our people globally the time and space to uh, select who should run their business, their country for them. It shouldn't be a burden to go vote anywhere in the world. It should be a right. Um, so we, we make these positions and stands, a lot of us, and you do with the fallout sometimes, but it, it, you know, some people it gets hard to do and other people can just keep doing it. I think right now I'm choosing to be in the gradient and try to still make those positions known that we feel are important. Uh, and then as far as organization and DNI and how we run the business, you do your best. And it's a very interesting space to be in uh, software development because the demographic that's available in this space isn't always the most diverse as you want it to be. Uh, some of the great examples, diversity isn't just uh, more colors, more uh, more sexes in the same business. It's sometimes it's too much. Like so, if you look at the biggest legal tech providers right now, I think CEOs are mostly Indian. Not mostly, but there's some like there's like three or four of us. Now, is that right? Like, should, now are we getting too much into the one? Like, you think about these things, right? So it's a constant battle, and you want to do. You want to make it right and you want to uh, have a very diverse talent pool that brings great ideas to the table every day. Um, I've been very lucky to build an executive team that I'm proud of. Um, it ebbs and flows in percentages. It's never what someone wants it to be, but we try our best to be as diverse because diversity brings great ideation to the table. 
Um, Let me ask you this. Yeah. Because, I mean, one thing that you talked about, I think what falls from cancer culture, I think cancer culture is a problem to the extent that cancer culture is a problem if you are really highly leveraged in some domain, right? So, I mean, like if you have a lot to lose, that's, that's who are people who have, who are subject to cancer culture. So if you're the head of this growing company, you know, relative to someone who isn't the head of the company, uh, you, 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 the threat of cancer culture is, is more uh, acute. So with that, you know, so the, the underlying issue there then is like, so you've made a choice, you know, to focus on, you know, in terms of going back to the goals that you had, you had certain goals and being the CEO of, of a company is one way to achieve these goals. That's one way to achieve these goals, let's say financial or, or, or sort of, you know, personal satisfaction. Um, had you ever given any thought to having a more diversified approach? So, I mean, like, uh, we haven't talked much about your history, but you know, you've worked on you know, just a variety of companies or, or, or in even industry, industries before taking on Latera, um, including like CPR training and just you know, very, very different fields. And so, you know, what, so you have a diversity of experience and you could have said, hey, you know what, I actually want to have a small portfolio of businesses that I'm going to grow. So what made you, it sounds like there was at least a tacit choice, or maybe it was an explicit choice to go all in on a company. So tell me more about that decision, because I think that's interesting because it affects other things like this cancel culture discussion and so forth. Yeah. So for me, I wanted to put all my, I want to put all my energy into one thing and prove to myself that I had the chops to take a business with my thoughts, my vision strategy and bring it to fruition because in the past it's always been still I, mean, I was CEO, I was the CEO right I was, there was all other people that were driving the ship I was running the business and I always feel like I had really good ideas that weren't weren't going to be implemented one of the reasons why I left the practice of law was you give your clients good ideas and they never listen so you just get tired of that position so I got tired of being the COO and always having ideas that never got put in place I said well I need to go find an area where I can have that impact I got very lucky with um, this opportunity and having two funds that have given me the ability to have a, strat- a strategic idea, to have a vision, to have a voice and to grow the business and find success in it. That's really why I'm driven here is to, is to, is to, is to selfishly find success in ideas. And then would be, it's, it's kind of on the education side. I want to impact the most amount of people every day as possible. And uh, you know, we have, we have a phrase here. We want to help people focus on what matters. So if you work at Latera, if today the most important thing to you is your family, then that's what you do. You don't worry about work. If today the most important thing to you is passing your MBA test, well, then that's what you do. If today the most important thing to you is closing a deal, then that's what you do. Um, and with our customers, if you're a lawyer, what's the most important thing to do? We want to make sure our technology supports that. So uh, I really want to impact as many people as possible. And you can only do that with focus. So by focusing on one business, one idea at this time, it allows us to have the greatest impact, I think. And so, so tell me some more about, you know, how, how you got connected to Latera. So, so what was, you said there was a luck component to it, but tell me some more about that. Like how did that happen? Uh, so I had just spent four years um, at a legal IT consulting firm here in Chicago um, came out of that looking for an opportunity in software and private equity because that's really where 
Um, the speed at uh, innovation was just moving at a different clip than the rest of the rest of the space. And uh, was on was, was looking at who is in the space doing interesting things. Came across uh, this fund out of LA, and they were happy to look at uh, microsystems uh, at the time uh, as an initial acquisition. So uh, it lined up well with my past experience of being a, a lawyer and then uh, be having this coming out of IT consulting to help them with this investment and then uh, getting placed as a CEO to run it going forward. So. You know, a bit of luck, uh, for sure. And then, but I think also was willing to leave something comfortable to go try something different as well. I've done that, you know, three times now in my career where I've kind of left something comfortable to go try something new and been very lucky. I, I always say I've been very lucky along the way, but, uh, you know, timing and, and, and effort have been there too. And so how do you counsel? I mean, you were saying before how some people just, you know, some people have the nerve to go do it. Some people don't. You know, how do you help people get that nerve? Um, you know, I think my job now in the the position I'm in, the size and scale we've taken this business. I think it's part of my job. I tell more of my story. I think, especially to. Uh, our demographic of, 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 of Indians, especially Indians born in the US, like show them that success is possible with taking the leap and uh, sometimes not, not being afraid or shutting down the fears of disappointing our parents. Uh, you know, if, we, if you put that into a box, you can probably do a lot more with your life than keeping it in a box and then keeping it out in the open or disappointing your community or your friends around you. If you can put more of those things in a box and be selfish with your own time and be selfish with yourself, I think uh, more people will find the willingness to try something different. Uh, it's not always about being a doctor or being a lawyer or an engineer, right? We've, I think we've proven that as a generation over and over, over and over again, seeing people succeed outside those professions. Um, and so I think all I can, I think my, one of my, my responsibilities now is just to try to get my story out a bit more just so people can kind of understand that, um, you know, I started off as a humble attorney in Chicago at a small firm, like making $40,000 a year at law school and grinding and just finding opportunities to take risk and uh, betting on myself um, as many times as I could versus someone else. So I think that to me is, is the important piece, right? Are you willing to bend yourself? Are you willing to be selfish? Because if you are, then I think more people will have the, the guts to try something. And so what, it, I mean, people say that, you know, betting on yourself, but like, what does that feel like? Or like, how do you conceptualize what it means to bet on yourself? And, you know, it feels like vomiting every three months because you're so nervous. Uh, you know, it's this idea of like, you, you if you have an idea, You've thought it through. Why have ideas at all unless you're going to do something with it, right? If you don't want to believe that something is a good idea, then why have any ideas at all, right? So you have to bet on yourself and you got to take the risk. And betting on myself means I'm willing to not make the salary I want today and reducing that compensation for a period of time and that's the bet i'm making right that's a that's tactical in nature right i'm going to eat jack's pizza and taco bell 
for a period of my life, which is actually sounds phenomenal right now, to survive, to reduce my cash burn. I'm not going to go out. Um, and I'm going to live and scrap to make what I'm trying to do realistic. And I did that in my late twenties and early thirties to some degree. And that's betting on yourself. You know, I don't think it requires someone investing in you millions of dollars or a lot. I think it's just taking meaningful steps to find opportunities for ideation, innovation, and investment. And so I use sweat equity. I use different commodities that I, that I had to get out of the practice of law, to take a risk on a CPR business that worked, and then taking a risk on a IT consulting firm that was kind of paused out and they needed to find a way to grow and solving that problem taking a risk on myself saying, I think I can be the CEO of a company, uh, convincing someone that I could do it. Uh, and then being nervous as hell for like a year trying to do it. And then once you find that first initial success, you're like, oh, confidence is there and you keep doing more and more. And you know, every three months this business is different. I'm like, I've never done X and I'm about to go do X. I'm like, I can do it. And all those times I say I can do it, that's a bet on myself, right? And uh, and when I can't do something, it's the willingness to say help and who has other ideas. So that's something that I've learned along the way, especially in the last two years, to say, why am I doing so much? We'd probably go faster if I had more folks saying I can do it on the team. And that's what I've been doing the last you know, six months is bringing people into business that uh, can take more of those I can do's on versus me. What's the experience... Is there a specific experience or transaction or event that you think had taught you the most uh, in, in, in educating the most uh, for the role that you have today? I mean, there's been so many uh, along the way. Uh, I had a really bad investor and uh, managing that, learning really quickly that not all money is good money. You know, that was an early lesson. Not every deal is a good deal in sales, right? You can say no to deals. You know, sometimes the biggest the biggest opportunity ends up killing the business was role lessons learned along the way. Uh, I think the biggest one was at uh, the consulting firm was just how important it is to motivate, engage people in the business to work in the same direction. Because as you get bigger, that's the biggest lever you have is your people and making sure they're motivated and excited about what you're doing. Uh, I probably spend half my time on that today. And, you know, the thing about the, the, you know, right now you mentioned how much the company is growing. It's growing at a, a really rapid clip. And, you know, but it sounds like the previous opportunities weren't exactly rocket ships. So tell me about the pros and cons about targeting, you know, a, a company that's high growth versus a company where you are doing everything you can to make it grow. Yeah. I think there's, right, there's a couple of different kinds of business styles. There's... You can create a business and uh, have it become a lifestyle business, right? It turns out a decent amount of cash every year, has very minimal growth to it. Um, uh, and that's a great business to be in, right? That's a long-term cash company and maybe someday you'll sell it for some value. Uh, then you have a startup business, you're just grinding to make the first couple of bucks so you can have dinner. 
Uh, and then if you want to get into the growth phase, that's the muscle, right? So the muscle I used at, cons at the consulting firm worked. We grew the business, you know, almost two or three X in three years. But it was still in the day, a lifestyle business for the ownership, for that owned the company. And they weren't ready to think of it anything other than that. And they weren't willing to double down on investments. They weren't willing to think of alternate ways of doing work to increase the growth trajectory because the lifestyle was so good that why change it? So I just, you know, we used some of those principles I used at the last couple of companies and said, now if you find a ownership group that's aligned with you on growth, aligned with you on investment thesis, what could happen? And that's what Pride Equity did for me was the, the direct alignment of, yeah, we want to grow. Yeah, we want to engage people and bring them on the journey. And yeah, we want to impact a certain industry for the long term. And those, you know, I've been very lucky again to have ownership along the way that's aligned on that thesis. And that's given us the chance to grow as fast as we have. Um, without that, if you're, you know, if the ownership and I were different, if the ownership was like, we want to just do profitability, we don't care about growth, just run this business as profitable as you can, I, I wouldn't stay here. That's not my operative mind. The operative is growth, growth, growth. Um, it's not to, it's not for you know just profit. It's we, we want to see growth, growth yields opportunity for our people, growth yields opportunity for the community, growth yields opportunity for innovation. And we have to be a growing organization. And I guess I'm very lucky that we've had ownership that's been aligned on that strategy for the last five years now. Are there any advantages you have from working with things that are maybe more lifestyle businesses and, you know, maybe structurally had some more challenges with scaling, you know, so are, did those experiences teach you something that, you know, maybe if you worked in a high growth area, you would have learned otherwise? Um, yeah, it's taught me that when we do M&A and we've bought companies along the way that have been lifestyle businesses, I now know what those founders care about. We understand why the business looks the way it does. We're less judgmental of what we acquire. We're more empathetic. We don't ask questions that don't exist because they just, they just grew a company and they're happy with it. And we just, we think we can do something magical with that technology. So we buy it and we put it into our ecosystem and not everybody can come along for that ride. It's different speed and we respect that. So I think what it's given me is the ability to have empathy for that type of business. So when we have those relationships or acquisitions in the future, we can treat them with a completely different level of respect and understanding than we would have someone else. Because you might go in with, if you went with the same lens, like, why aren't you growing? Why is this bad? Why is that? That's, that's not the way to do it. This is not bad. You did a great job for what you were doing. You, you build a business that does $10 million of revenue. You walk home with a million and a half of cash every year. And that hasn't changed for 20 years. I'm not going to knock you for that. That's amazing. Good for you. Um, but give me now the chance to take what you've built and make it better. And so it helps with that conversation. That's quite right. a bit. Yeah. So tell me, you know, that, that empathy component is, is something you couldn't have had unless you had that previous experience. Um, and it sounds like your previous experiences have informed how you are running Latera now. Uh, but tell me about what's the most difficult decision you've made as CEO. Uh, so, this business has grown from you know, 16 million in revenue and we've grown up to big size today and it's going to keep growing. And <clears throat> there's people that come along the journey with you and they make a huge impact on the business and they make a huge impact on 
where the company's going. And they've, um, they've planted seeds that have huge value for the long term, but they don't have the skills or experience to go from 200 to 500 million. And you have to move on from that opportunity and have them recognize that as well and go find something else to work on. So it's really hard to um, stay focused on stuff like that. But you know, along the way, you may have to change who the leaders are once in a while to do that. And that's, those are tough conversations that I've had in the past. I think we feel those are easy things that people do, but um, we have a duty to keep, keep this company safe. And uh, so that's, those are tough, those are tough times and uh, they eat you inside, but we, uh, we do the best we can as we grow and make the right decisions along the way. Uh, so that's, that's probably been the toughest one for me. So when you're going down this path, I mean, you talked about turning to people for guidance. Um, I don't really have any sense of, you know, are there, what are the, what are the kind of, I know you've got your internal guideposts and the goals you've set for yourself, but what are the external sources that you've turned to? I mean, have you, are there, is there, are there books that made impacting over the years? Is there, you know, business leaders that made impacting over the years? Like what are, what are the sort of external inputs? Yeah. There's been a good handful. So there's other CEOs that I've met along the way from different portfolio companies that the funds own. So you're able to lean on their experiences to help you with decision making. And that's been huge, hugely impactful in my growth uh, over the last five years. Uh, we follow a book called The Advantage. It talks about organizational health and how do you actually build clarity inside your business. And we, we try to follow that as close as we can for the last four or five years. And it's it's helped us scale. Um, I have a very active board that I can leverage for experiences again. And my chair, uh, the chairperson is really, um, is someone who's done it multiple times and seen it multiple times and can help me along the way too. Those have been things that have specifically impacted the success of Latera and the brand and how the business has evolved. Um, and, you know, they've all had various impact and impact levels. But, yeah, I think it's – each person is different. I'm not someone that uh, is actively out looking for more mentors. But the people that I have had have been very, very uh, meaningful along the way. And now I'm just picturing, you know – I think there's probably maybe some college graduates listening to right, this right now. And I'm sure this is a big eye opener because, you know, certainly when I graduated college, it was hard to get access to the founder of a legal tech company, somebody who was a former lawyer themselves. Uh, so I imagine uh, I'm picturing this person right now, um, you know, and that's someone like you, you know, you're setting out you know, at that time to kind of, you know, uh, embark on your own uh, adventure. Uh, and maybe you would benefit from hearing something from someone like yourself. Um, so what is, what's, you know, what's a message you have for that, that new law graduate, uh, you know, who's just looking to work himself? Um, look, when you come out of law school and you come out of school and you're entering the workplace, um, you gotta be a sponge and you gotta treat people the right way. Cause you never know when they're going to be part of your network later. Um, so learn as much as you can from everybody around you and treat people with respect and dignity um, even if you went to a top tier school and you graduated one, there is no one below you. Everybody's equal, right? So you've got to have um, 
when you enter the, when you enter a workforce, you've got to get that ego and check at the door. You've got to be uh, part of the ecosystem. You got to be a collaborative person. You got to learn a lot. Got to have fun, right? You got to. You just finished intensive course of work. You're gonna be intensive work for the next couple of years as a as a fresh associate. But you got to find a chance to have that social outlet because at some point you got to turn it off and you got to get really focused on what you want to do if that's your desire, right? There's I I have plenty of college friends that have never turned it off. They have a lot of fun and they work they work hard, but they don't have massive ambitions beyond what they what they are doing. So it's great. It works for them. But if you're someone that had a vision for yourself to be something great or do something meaningful, at some point you got to turn it off and you've got to focus on that, whatever that is, you've got to make that priority one. And whenever that realization hits, you got to do it and go for it. Um, if you don't want to turn it off, then you can't complain, right? That's kind of my statement I've given to my nieces and nephews. Like if you if you're going to have fun, you can't be mad that you're not doing something else. You can't be mad that you didn't get promoted. You can't be mad that you didn't get staff on a project. You can't be mad about X, Y, and Z. Um, so at some point you got to turn it off and you got to be focused and have intent and purpose, whether that's, whether that's charity, whatever it is, right? You've got to do it to the best you can. You can't half-ass stuff. So um, I think you enjoy life after graduation. You enjoy life as a fresher, but then at some point you'll be like, it's time. It's go time. And again, whether it's charity, whether it's family, whether it's work or career, it's time to get serious and make that priority one. That's an awesome message. It took me longer than I should have, right? I, I, think, I don't think I got focused until I was like 29. Had I started that when I was like 25, then I don't know. I probably would be a lawyer because I got really focused on my career when I was 29. I stopped being a lawyer before then. But if I had, at 25 came out of law school, I stopped partying when I was 26 and started saying, let's go. Who knows? Be a different path. But uh, so, you know, timing is everything. Yeah, but it seems like uh, I think that's exactly it. I think, you know, um, knowing what can play energy too makes all the difference. And, you know, uh, it could have been for something very different. But, uh, you know, this has, like you're saying, in terms of the impact you're looking to generate ultimately, this in terms of the number of people you can affect in a given day, it seems like this is more aligned with that goal. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Great story, you know, and I really appreciate you sharing it, especially in the context of talking about how folks are with your time. So uh, I definitely appreciate you taking the time to talk about this. Yeah, it was, it was good. It was a good pause. I look forward to listening to this back and having uh, to hear myself be an idiot. So thanks. <laughs> sure.